0: Gentlemen, start your engines. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem.
1: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall.
0: The only thing we have to fear is fear itself.
1: I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Five, four, three,
0: two, one, fire! You're listening to Jim
1: Paris Live! Your source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris.
0: All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our guest segment. I want to set this up for you. Jack the Ripper was an unidentified serial killer active in the largely impoverished areas in and around the Whitechapel District of London in 1888. Attacks ascribed to Jack the Ripper typically involved female prostitutes who lived and worked in the slums of the east end of London whose throats were cut and get this. They were also um, mutilated. Uh, Their abdomens were were mutilated. And and it uh, unreal the crime at the time that this took place. The name Jack the Ripper originated in a letter written by an individual claiming to be the murderer that was disseminated. In the media. This book is fascinating. It's called Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. And of course, Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character. And the book is a work of fiction, but based on historical facts and actually claims to solve the mystery of who was Jack the Ripper. And joining us is private investigator and author Randy Williams. Randy, good to have you back with us, sir. Hi, Jim. Hey, um I, I wanted to start by uh telling you I, I took some time today to watch some videos of that whole area, um Mitre Square, and I even found a picture of you online in mitre square um is is that area are there tours going on i mean are people other than the crazy uh people like you and i that are fascinated with <laughs> serial killers do people really go to london and look at all these different sites and and talk about jack the ripper 132 years later
1: oh certainly yeah it's it's a sort of a cottage industry a couple of my friends a real good friend of mine Called Richard Jones, who's interviewed me on his website, arguably the world's leading Jack the Ripper expert. He runs it, uh, jacktherippertours.com and actually takes people around and gives them, he takes them to the murder sites or where they used to be, because most of them have been destroyed by now. And he takes them there and shows them, you know, where the murders took place and gives them a history of the case and, um, and sort of informs them about the different theories. And hopefully he, once in a while he probably mentions mine and i have another friend who also does the same thing uh, a guy called rick cobb and he runs his own uh, ripper tours so there and they are by far not the only ones they're just the best and top guys but there are probably a dozen or more such companies that run these tours
0: wow that is fascinating now now back at that time in 1888 were these heinous crimes Highly unusual. I think people today. Uh, would hear about throats cut, abdominal, uh, abdominal mutilations. These things. Well, you know that happens today. Uh, you know, probably every night. You know, in a city like Chicago or something. Um, back in the day, these types of 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 horrendous murders, leaving the victims laying out in public. Um, this is why it was such a big deal. It wasn't something that uh, was happening at all anywhere. Really, is that right?
1: Well, right. I, I think the key word there was horrendous because there were plenty of knifings going on in, in that part of London, which was a really crime ridden, um, you know, poverty stricken area of the city. So there were a lot of murders going on, but not that type of murder. Uh, the you know, knife murders were very commonplace, as a matter of fact, but not that particular ritualistic slaughter of women, specifically prostitutes in that area. That was and, and attention grabbing, and grabbing. In fact, as we'll talk about tonight, it's really the underlying reason those victims were chosen. That particular method of, of killing was
0: chosen. And it it would it be fair to say that the Jack the Ripper case would be the first. What we call today serial killer uh, type of uh, a case, where you've got the uh, you know horrible mutilation of the bodies, you've got letters being written, uh, playing to the media, uh, scaring the public. Uh, that that whole uh, pattern that we today call you know the the serial killer. Would it be fair to say that this was the first?
1: Well, to that extent, you know, with the taunting the police and that sort of thing, yes. There was actually a, a serial killer much earlier than Jack the Ripper in London called Renwick Williams. No relation that I know of, <laughs> although who knows? And uh, But his, his killings were nowhere near as gruesome, and he didn't taunt the police in the way that Jack the Ripper did. You know, many serial killers have sort of modeled themselves after Jack the Ripper, for lack of a better term. You know, you remember Dennis Rader the, in Wichita, the um, BTK killer? Right. He uh, – He would taunt the police and send them taunting letters. And eventually that's what got him caught because he was stupid enough to send them a a floppy disk, which could be traced back to his computer at the church where he was a deacon or something, some sort of official. But anyway, um, a lot of the serial killers seem to idolize Jack the Ripper to some extent and have modeled their actions after him. As we'll talk about hopefully later, um, Jack the Ripper was not the very first. He was probably he was not the very first serial killer by any means, but he was the first to do certain things that have become somewhat commonplace in serial killings today, like taunting the police with letters, like inserting himself into the investigation, for example. Um, Many have done it. Thousands, if not more, have done it since Jack the Ripper, but he was probably the first to actually do it, insert himself into the investigation, for example, by pretending to find a body. Um, It's been done by loads of people since, but he was really the first. So um, we can say that Jack the Ripper, by the way, wasn't one man. It was actually three men working together, being paid by a fourth. Um, And I know that sounds outlandish, but I can actually prove that and have done. Um, He wasn't the the first to do certain things, but he was certainly the first um, to become as, I don't know, notable as I, I don't I don't want to give him credit I don't want to you know sort of act like he's
0: well such I, a star, I think the but, word I think the word infamous would be the right word um and, and, right, and well, yeah and and and, and to, in today's world of course you know uh with the internet and with uh 24/7 uh, thousands of TV channels all of this kind of thing um you know today in today's world uh, serial killers uh certainly have even a much greater stage upon which uh to play these kinds of psychological games, uh, which they do. Uh, I, I know I asked you this in the last interview, but I wanted to hit you with it again because several people emailed me this week knowing you were going to be on and they wanted to get your thoughts about this character H.H. H. Holmes, which there's now, I guess a popular growing thought that he might've been also Jack the Ripper, that he was doing horrendous things in the Midwest and then would, uh, right. would go uh, overseas And and do things over there as well. But but you're not convinced that that's the case.
1: Well, I'm just the opposite. I'm convinced that it's not the case, because, first of all, I have all the proof that I need. And I'll share with you tonight who the actual killers were. But let's just talk about H.H. Holmes and his case. First of all, there's no proof whatsoever that H.H. Holmes ever set foot in England, let alone Whitechapel. There were numerous um, eyewitnesses who all said that Jack the Ripper was of Jewish descent. There was no way that a British person would confuse, a, a British Gentile would confuse an American accent with that of a local Jewish person. Um, the description doesn't fit. Maybe the physical description could fit, but as far as his accent, it wasn't an American. Um, J- Jack the Ripper's motivation, which I'll hopefully touch on tonight, had nothing to do with financial gain. H.H. Holmes built this hotel, you know about the horror hotel or whatever they call it, where he basically selected victims that he would dupe and for financial gain would murder. So he wasn't murdering for the sake of murdering. He wasn't murdering for propaganda as Jack the Ripper was. He wasn't murdering for a cause other than his own financial gain so he was doing insurance scams and murdering people on on the, that basis which is nothing like the MO of Jack the Ripper he wasn't selecting random prostitutes anonymously he was selecting victims that he could assume the identity of and collect their insurance money or somehow get uh, become their uh beneficiary in an insurance policy and financially gain from their murders
0: yeah, you're on, you're 100 percent right, action. because and and his in his uh all of his victims were like hidden in walls and crawl spaces and he was not displaying them in public. In fact, he would would be happy if they would never be found. And he was t- totally operating on a different level. It sounds to me like maybe just somebody was trying to get publicity for that H.H. H. Holmes TV show, that TV series that right, came right. out uh, by trying to do that. Well, now, go ahead.
1: No, I I think you've you've nailed it. You actually went on to say what I was probably about to say. Um, So, yeah, the the MO, the 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 motive. um, There's no there's no reason to believe he ever set foot in England. All of the things I mentioned, um, it's not feasible. But above all of that, there's actually no evidence whatsoever that he committed the crimes, and that's because he didn't. (laughs) Um, There's no evidence. So what a lot of armchair detectives like to do is speculate based on what ifs and what I like to call conjectural evidence. And there certainly is some conjecture in my case. But in in my case, what I'll do is I'll provide all of the facts of the case and the evidence. And then when I'm done, I'll say, and so then, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if you believe the evidence that I presented that shows you that these men are guilty of these crimes... Let me just now tell you that three of them worked in the hat making industry and four of my victims bought hats just prior to their murders or or that sort of conjectural thing where, you know, it sounds great and it it probably brings the ratings up on a TV show, but it wouldn't convict anyone in a court of law. However, when you have this preponderance of evidence pointing at these guys guilt, you can then start to pile on this conjectural stuff where you can say, yeah, by the way, he was a seller of costume jewelry, and two of my victims bought and sold costume jewelry to avoid prostitution. That won't convict anyone in a court of law, but if you've already been provided ample evidence that this guy is the killer, enough to have convinced you already, then this is icing on the cake that we might add.
0: Interesting. Now, uh, before we get into the case itself, I did want to touch on this a whole issue of ripperology and I did some looking around this week at I I can't tell you how many forums and discussions that I found and you know over 130 years later what is it about this case that it seems to just uh, it's people are gripped by it? I mean, literally as moments before the show, seeing people posting and debating um, about this case online, what do you think it is about this particular case that seems to have people riveted?
1: Well, above everything else, it's the fact that it remains unsolved, at least according to most people. I believe I've solved it and, and can prove that. But because of the fact that it remains unsolved, um, everyone loves a mystery, or most people do. And a lot of people, as I mentioned before, the armchair detectives love to conjecture on who it could be and provide their own theories and, and debate it. It also occurred in a very sort of romantic period in history, not so much if you really understand that period and you really understand the abject poverty and the filth and the famine and the, the disease, the homelessness that was going on, the crime. But Victorian London is sort of a romanticized period. There are all these TV shows about that particular period. You know, the, the um, horse and carriages, the top hats, the opera, you know, the uh, Queen Victoria's pageantry, the pomp and circumstance, the changing of the guard, the fountains, the tea and crumpets, and all that. So I think, People are fascinated with that particular period in history and the contrast of this gruesome murder, which has been romanticized again in in many TV shows. You always see this guy in a top hat, very dapper, with a cape trailing behind him, running away with a medical bag and sort of that image that's conjured up. I think that that strikes a chord in some people. And in fact, I have to admit, it's probably what drew me to the case when I first started looking at it 50 years ago or close to it. And the fact that it's unsolved is probably the key factor. And and as you know, there are so many people these days that are into, you know, the ID channel, the Discovery Channel, uh, these true crime shows, and everybody's sort of drawn to these cases. And there's a a bigger interest now than ever before in these unsolved or even solved murder cases and, and the study of how the detectives solved the crime. So I think this is the ultimate unsolved mystery. And I think it's it ranks among the world's top mysteries, period, right up there with who built the pyramids and are there aliens and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Now, when people who haven't studied this hear the term Jack the Ripper, which is now part of our, you know, our nomenclature, I mean, people use that term all the time. Um Mm-hmm. they, they, uh, they think Joe that, Biden used it a couple of weeks ago Okay, and they, they kind of imagine that there were like maybe like a Ted Bundy who had uh, at least three dozen murders there were only five murders is that right that we know of uh, by Jack the Ripper mm,
1: well actually no um, but I know why you're saying that because there are five murders that are called canonical that's a sort of an archaic term, meaning generally accepted by the majority. So canonical. And so those five canonical murders are, are those that everyone says, yeah, that was Jack the Ripper. Well, not everyone, because not everyone agrees on anything in the Ripper case, as you've probably seen. But the general consensus is that these five murders were committed by Jack the Ripper. However, I can prove many more. From what I can prove, there was one attack which eventually led to the woman's death, which the medical examiner pronounced unrelated to the attack, although I disagree, as did my experts. Um, there was one attack, and there were 12 and possibly 13 murders committed by Jack the Ripper. And we've connected them by the fact that we've been able to prove that they all took place on very specific dates of what's called the Eastern Liturgical Calendar of the of the Bible of the Eastern Liturgical Bible. There are what are called the twelve great feasts of the Theotokos. Now Theotokos is the Greek word which is used for Mother Mary, the mother of Jesus. And when we look at the dates of the Ripper murders, which I found quite by accident, um, were related to the twelve great feasts of Russia of the Theotokos, not only Russia, but they were, they're primarily celebrated in Russia. There are what, what called the, what is called the 12 great feasts surrounding Mother Mary. And of those 12 great feasts, these 12 murders that I had described earlier, um, took place on various dates of the Theot- Theotokos. Now there were 13 possible murders, but at least 12 that I can prove and of those 12 let's keep in mind that there are only 12 great feasts of the theotokos so with the 13 murders that i believe took place they had to repeat two of them on the same date which they did because they ran out of great feasts of the theotokos Fascinating. so if we look at the fact that if we look at the fact that 13 murders and one attack all took place on Feasts of the Theotokos. I have a friend that works as a mathematician at uh, a university, Princeton University in New Jersey. And I went to him and I said, Tony, if, you, if I was to tell you that 13 murders took place on the 12 Great Feasts of the Theotokos over a three-year period, what would the odds be that that could be a coincidence? So he said, well, Let's do this. Let's make it one year, which would make it less likely to be a coincidence rather than more. So he said, let's take those 13 murders and make them happen in over one 365 day period rather than a three year period on on dates of the Theotokos. And he said that the odds of that happening were expressed by a figure of of, of a one followed by 17 zeros to one. So, so it, it's it's so it's so infinitesimally impossible that it was a coincidence. It's greater than a DNA match. So
0: and then if you put if you added the other two years, it would have made it would exponentially greater. Yeah, made that number greater. larger. Uh, that that's fascinating. So, were you the first one to come up with this these these dates and the connection yeah, and, there?
1: Yes, and I have no freaking idea how in the hell nobody else saw it. I really have no idea because, you know, what I did was one day I was sitting in front of my computer and I was just messing around with the case. And I said, you know what, let me just Google the date, um, the dates of these murders and see if there's anything specifically important about these dates. And and I mean, I didn't Google the actual year, I just just the day. So what I did was I put in, you know, the day of, of the double event. And I see what's, what's important about that day. It said something about, oh, today's National Secretary's Day, today's National Bring Your Dog to Work Day, and today is um, NHS Appreciation Day. And also it's a feast day of the Theotokos in the Eastern Liturgical Bible. And I go, oh, all right. Don't know what that is, but okay. So I Google another date of another murder, and it says, you know, it's National Give Your Bird a Bath Day, and <laughs> it's Israel Independence Day, and it's whatever, you know, and then it, it said, and it's also Feast of the Theotokos in the Eastern Liturgical Bible. So I'm like, hmm, well, I guess. And I did this to the next one, and the next one, and they all seem to have this little tagline at the end that said they were Feast of Theotokos. You know, hmm, well, I wonder what that is. So then I Google. Theotokos. And I find out that it's the Greek from the Mary. And I'm like, that's ringing a bell because of some other things to tell you about later. When we talk about that,
0: um, yeah. that's, that, that's go, fascinating well, how you just using Google uh, that, uh, you know, Googling those dates. I mean, it, it it's, it's amazing that you would think back at the time that they might've made that connection. And here you are right. uh, you over a hundred uh, years later and then, priest, and you make the connection. Yes.
1: Yes, 100%. You would have thought that some Greek priest would have said, hey, these murders are all happening on these Theotokos dates. But
0: he didn't. Yeah.
1: In any case, you know, I, I, I said, well, let me just Google my birthday and see if that's a Theotokos day," And it wasn't. <laughs> and I said, well, let me Google my mother's birthday, and it wasn't. Well, let me Google today's date, and it wasn't. So then I go further into this Theotokos thing, and I find out that there are only 12 Theotokos days in a year. And all of those dates contained Rupert murders.
0: Yeah, that's so fascinating. Thought,
1: well, this can't be a coincidence. I mean, it isn't what I thought. It's what was proven to me. So the the figure, I just, uh, while we were talking, it works out to be um, the ability against it being a coincidence is, 000000000000000013 to 1 against it being a coincidence. So mathematically that amounts to an astronomical ratio expressed by a figure of a 7 followed by 15 zeros to 1 against it being purely coincidental. That should remove all doubt that it was fully intentional.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I did I didn't want to skip past this too quickly, but I was really amazed and we didn't talk about this a lot on the last interview, but that you got the co-authors of your book at doctors, Cyril Weck, Michael Bodden and Henry Lee. I mean, talk about a dream team of of co-authors. How did you get mm-hmm. them as co-authors and how much forensic evidence still exists today that they were able to realistically take a look at uh, to be able to be you know, helpful in this uh, this process of, of determining who the killer was?
1: Well, how I got them is one story. And and that second part of your question, I should probably uh, answer first, which is what evidence exists now is very little. There's very little left. Um, and what there is, there's a show, for example, that theoretically or ostensibly belonged to Catherine Eddowes, one of the victims of the double event, which my all three of my co-authors dispute the veracity of. There's that. Most of the evidence that they used to help me in the investigation was those medical reports left behind by the doctors at the time. Dr. Baxter Phillips, Dr. Uh, Gordon Brown, um, the guys that that did the, the autopsies on the victims and were there present at the scenes of the crimes and took note of all of the details. That was the primary evidence used by my doctors. However, Dr. Michael Bodden, who most of your listeners probably know from that TV show he used to have called Autopsy on HBO, you know, he was the chief medical examiner or coroner for New York City for over 25 years. He was part of the Warren Commission on the Kennedy assassination, the autopsy, Elvis Presley's autopsy. He did John Belushi's uh, Claus von Bulow. Remember, they made that movie with um, Glenn Close about that murder. Um, Dr. Bod was actually contracted by Scotland Yard in the 1960s to go to England and try to solve the case himself. He was unable to do so at the time due to the lack of evidence he was provided, but he was given Everything there was at the time existing. Um, unfortunately, like we don't have a knife we don't have the apron from the double event which we wish we had. We do have some of the letters which they've uh, tried to do DNA on and have been unsuccessful with. so really the primary evidence is is what's in the record. so going back to the first part of your question, how did I get these guys on board and i'm I'm quite proud of myself and it was a lot of luck, you know, it was, it was mainly luck and it was probably a little bit of schmoozing on my part. But in any case, what happened was in the course of my work as a private investigator in Pennsylvania, I was thrown together with Dr. Michael Bodden, kind of by, not by mistake, but by good fortune working. I also was working on that. He came in to testify in court Uh, regarding the method of death and the manner of death. So he was involved in this case since its inception, and he had been called back in to testify again at a further trial for this serial killer in my area, a guy called Hugo Selinsky. And so Dr. Bodden came in the night before and was having dinner with the district attorney and his team, and I was invited to this dinner. And I decided, you know, since I was invited, he's been a hero of mine since I was a kid. And I thought, well, let me grab a book of his that I have on my shelf and see if I can get him to sign it. So I went to this dinner and I was very quiet. I sat there and let everybody talk about what was going on at tomorrow's trial and everything else. And I was sort of sitting there quietly. And at some point in the dinner, Dr. Bodden looks across the table and he says to me, who are you? I said, oh, my name's my name's Randy. And he says, are, are, are you an attorney? And I said, um, no, I'm a detective. And he says, oh, OK, well, um, nice to meet you, son. And uh, and I said, Dr. Baden, if it wouldn't be, you know, a huge imposition on you, do you think I could ask you to sign this book? And he's like, and I held up this book I had of his. And he he says, oh, my God, you have my book? And I thought, yeah, of course I have your book. Uh, w- would you sign it for me? Bring it over here. So I brought it over, and I'm, he's signing it, and the district attorney says to him, you know, Dr. Bodden, you might want to get Randy's autograph while you're at it. And Dr. Bodden's like, well, why would that be? And <laughs> the, district, the district attorney tells him, well, Randy's sort of a well-known martial artist um, in parts and kind of, a, you know, internationally. So Dr. Bodden, as he is very common, commonly seen to do, he says to me, well, what style of martial arts are you in? And I said, "Oh, it's it's called Wing Chun." And Doctor. Biden goes, "Wing Chun, really? Well, my brother happens to be a fanatic in that style." So I said, "No, you're kidding me." So this is says Doctor. Biden. I want to call him right now and tell him who you're sitting with.
0: Randy, I'm gonna. uh, Randy, you're we're getting now like almost every other word from you on the uh, direct connect. Um, is it possible mm-hmm. for you to, uh, hang up on the direct connect and give us a call on the, uh, the phone number? I'm not on the direct connect. Oh, you're not. Okay. Cause I'm, cause I thought you were on the direct connect. That's why it's sort of breaking up. So if you're mm-hmm. on the phone, maybe, I don't know if you can figure out a way to get a little bit of a better signal. I just don't want to miss anything you're saying. And it just, we just started losing you a lot, like every other word.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, let me see if I can move closer to Wi-Fi or the, a better signal.
0: Yeah, that would be, Hi. yeah. I don't know. Sometimes in my house I've got certain spots I can stand and get a good signal. So I don't know if that's the case yeah, where you are. I,
1: yeah, I, I think I do. Let's, okay, let's that sounds, oh better. wow. Gonna,
0: that sounds even better right now. Better? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so can pick okay, up great. there. So so Bod, so 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 Baden is is connecting with you because he has a, a relative who who is involved with your style of martial arts and and so you right, made a real brother, friend there. Yeah.
1: Right. So he says, Well so the, the district attorney tells Dr. Baden why don't you call your your brother then? So we call up his brother and he says, Hey, Bobby, I'm I'm sitting here with this guy uh, who's a, a an instructor in the same style that you train in. His name's Randy Williams, and you hear it on the other end of the phone, you hear him go, "Randy Williams, oh my, you know," and, uh, you know I'm nothing, but he he, he thought it, it was a big deal, so he puts me on the phone with the guy, and I talked to him for a little bit, and uh, and so we we formed a friendship. So we ended up hanging out that night, Doctor Bodden and I, until everybody left, and then we stayed back for a while and had a couple of drinks. And got to be somewhat of friends. So the next morning, I was seated in the courtroom with Dr. Bodden. And we're sitting right across from the defendant. And the judge says to Dr. Bodden, as it turns out wrongly, he says, Dr. Bodden, you have to leave the courtroom because you're going to testify so we can't have you in here. So the DA really didn't want to fight that battle, even though he knew he could win it. He just didn't want to alienate the judge. So he just didn't contest it. And he comes over to me and he says, hey, would you like to keep Dr. Biden busy for a little while, maybe a couple, three hours? Um, I'm like, of course. I'm like, who wouldn't? So Dr. B and I went into this little war room next to the courtroom where they had all of the chalkboards with all the facts of the case and everything written on the walls. And we start talking and he brings out his laptop. Hey, you want to see some gross pictures? Sure. So he starts showing me pictures of like Marilyn Monroe's tongue and Elvis's heart and things like that. And I probably shouldn't say that on, on the radio, but <laughs> anyway, um, he's showing me all these gross pictures. And, you know, he, he asked me, Hey, if you, if you happen to die before me, can I do your autopsy type thing? So we, we had a lot of laughs. And, um, and at some point we kind of ran out of stuff to talk about for a minute. And I said, Hey, Dr. Baden, you know, if I were to say to you that I solved the Jack the Ripper case, what would you say? And he goes, Well, you know, if most people were to say that to me i'd I'd laugh or say they were crazy. but from what I know about you and what my brother says about you and what I've seen, you know, I'll give you a shout at it. Just, all right let me let me hear it what do What do you think? Who was Jack the Ripper? So I said, uh, well, um uh, it's not that simple, Dr. Bodden. It was actually more than one man. It was actually three men working together, paid by a fourth. And he goes, all right, you've got my attention. I've always believed it was more than one man. And, um, and so who do you think then was Jack the Ripper? And I said, well, it's a name you probably haven't heard. Um, it's a guy called Louis Deemschutz. And he goes, Louis Deemschutz, Louis Deemschutz. Hmm. Was that the guy that found the body of Elizabeth Stride in front of the International Working Men's Educational Club? Um, the first of the two murders of the double event. And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's him. He goes, okay, well, you're going to have a little bit of trouble convincing me of that because, you know, after all, he was with the police when the second murder of Catherine Eddowes took place in Miter Square, half a mile away. So I'm basically flabbergasted at this guy. And I go, tell you that he had accomplices, right? He, it was a team of three men working together. So he actually had his two accomplices commit the second murder while he had the perfect alibi by bringing his nemesis to the premises, as I put it, um, and Um and basically gloated in the fact that these guys all thought he was some guy that found a body when in actual fact he was the murderer. And he was setting himself up with the perfect alibi while his two accomplices committed the second murder in Mitre Square. So in a nutshell, then, Baden says, all right, let me hear your, your theory of the case. Let me hear the facts of the case, everything that you've got. So for the next sort of 45 minutes or so, I ran down everything that I had come up with about the case. And Dr. Baden, by the time I was done, said, son, if you can substantiate everything you've told me here today, you have absolutely cracked this case. So I want your case file on my desk no later than tomorrow morning and I will review it. And if everything that you say checks out, we are going to take this as far as it can go because you've cracked it. Wow. So of course I was over the moon. I had my case, you know, all my ducks were in a row. So the next morning I sent a FedEx package to Dr. Baden with all of the evidence that I had gathered and it didn't take long. And I get a phone call from Dr. Baden saying, kid, you've cracked it. You've absolutely cracked the world's greatest murder mystery. And now we've got to get Henry Lee and Cyril Wecht involved. So he made arrangements for me to meet up with them. Uh, Dr. Lee was doing a symposium in Philadelphia a few days or a week after that phone call. So he said, I want you there. And of course, there I went and met Dr. Lee and Dr. Wecht Who treated me like I was some kind of celebrity, which was crazy. I mean, I was like pinch myself type of situation. (laughs) But I presented my case to doctors Wecht and Lee, who were then further convinced. And we had decided at that time, then we got Dr. Baden on a speakerphone and we discussed this. And he said, we've got to do a book on this. And that's where this whole thing came about and i'm wow. sure by now you're sorry you asked.
0: No, no, i'm that's fascinating because when you, you know, see your name on the cover but then you see the the three co-authors, um man, i mean talk about having the weight of credibility uh there with you. Uh those three names, i mean, what legends to have to to kind of uh, corroborate, you know, your your theory on this. Um the the idea though of writing this within the context of of Sherlock Holmes, who of course is a fictional character. Um, what drove you to do that as opposed to just writing a book, uh, a factual book that I've solved the case? of Jack the Ripper and and just kind of approach it like that versus going in the direction. I mean, I love your writing and and I told you the last time you were here, I can't believe this is the only book like this you've written because the way you write is, is incredible. I mean, like someone that's written 50 books you, you, you write like uh, especially in this genre of, you know, this mystery type novel genre. Um, What made you take this angle with it?
1: Well, Thanks for the compliment, by the way. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but on my Sherlock Holmes page for the book, um, I've been reading it as an audio book every day, a chapter a day for the past 20 days. Um, okay, great. Why we did that? Why we did that? Well, what happened was, as we were sitting around discussing this that night that I was describing earlier in Philly, um, we decided a book had to be written. But all three of the doctors, as you probably know, have written dozens, if not more, books each on true crime and cases that they've been involved in. And each of them was of the opinion that, hey, you could do this as a true crime book, but it really won't get out to enough people that way because they're just, it's not about money. Each of those men have more money than God, or that's a dumb expression, (laughs) but each of these guys, they they don't need money. Right, right. And, and so it wasn't a question of money. And, and I'll explain more about that later if you let me. But it wasn't about money. In fact, they each turned down a million dollars from, from some other Ripper author who wanted them to rubber stamp their theory. And they all said no. And they each passed up a million dollar offer. And, um, and so they, they're very scrupulous. So they said it's not about money, but it's really more about wanting to get this out to as many people as possible. So we really need a sort of a hook. We need something that's going to bring more people into the case. Well, I had mentioned that that day was a symposium by Dr. Lee, and the symposium that day had to do with how Sherlock Holmes affected and basically gave birth to modern forensic science. So it was on my mind, and it came to me, and it came to all of them kind of simultaneously, that all of us had been drawn into our careers in, in in my case, private investigation, in their case, criminology and, and forensics, by our interest in Sherlock Holmes. Every one of us, when we were kids, read Sherlock Holmes, and it inspired us to become investigators of a sort. And we all, f- since we were little. So after having discussed a little bit about the fact that Sherlock Holmes gave birth to forensics and, and was really the reason we were all together in this room. Uh, and Dr. Bodden, who was with us in here, um, that a Sherlock Holmes book would be the way to get more people involved, because there were the Robert and the Benedict Cumberbatch series. And of course, we all, us older guys, grew up with the uh Basil Rathbone or the Me Brett series. This so, is is a huge sort of drawing in interest. To many people that would draw more.
0: People. Right. So so b- the bottom line is that they that commercially this would be a more effective way to share the story. And, and I would agree with that. You know, I, I'm a I'm a nonfiction writer and I am so jealous of these uh, fiction writers that you know, their their book sales are like a thousand times my book sales. Um, And, and, and I always try to argue, uh, you know, the facts with my with myself, like, well, wait a minute. Now, my book actually teaches someone how to really do something or make money or save money or, you know, do something within my realm. And this person is buying this book about this story, this, you know, uh, romance story or whatever, and and they're selling 20 million copies, and I'm selling 20,000 copies. But I, I get that. And then the fact that you combine Sherlock Holmes um, with a real actual crime. And I, I think it's a fascinating idea and it's historically, uh, you know, accurate and, and interesting and would appeal then to two audiences, the true crime audience and also to people that, uh, would be interested in, in historical fiction, uh, as well, even though it's not really fiction. Of course, it's, it's fictional in the sense that it does involve Sherlock Holmes. So, so that, that clears that up for me. I want you to go back though to this, um, this this uh Deem shoots, however you pronounce that. Tell us more about him, and um, you know, how does he come onto the scene as as the individual um who seems to be sort of the central person here? Tell us more about him, um, like his background and and what do you think um you know motivated him to. Uh, to do this. Uh, it, it sounds to me like there was a backstory here, more so than just a guy that was bored and was looking to uh, kill people. I mean, clearly those dates were significant. The people, he, the women he killed were significant in terms of a profile of, of the victims, the victimology. Uh, give us a little bit background on him.
1: All right. Well, Louis Diemschutz, which, by the way, is a fake name, um, Diemschutz is a combination of Russian and Yiddish, which were languages that Louis Deemschitz spoke, which actually translates out to mean protector of noble women. It can also mean protector made of smoke, as in smoke and mirrors, or, you know, sort of up in smoke. He sometimes referred to himself in, in certain occasions as Deem Holtz, which means wood smoke. So it was a fake name that he made up and as I found out, the more I learned about the lover of word games and anagrams, and he loved to play, you know, almost puns, and, and we'll find that out more as we look at the case. But Louis Diemschutz was a Russian who was 27 in, in 1888, and who was the steward or the kind of the president of the International Working Men's Educational Club which, by the way, was anything but an educational club. It was a socialist anarchist club whose driving force, whose main objective was to destroy England at all costs. However, it masqueraded as an international working men's educational club um, in order to remain operational. So he was the steward put in place by Prince Peter Kropotkin, who started the club. He was uh, actually one of the founders of the anarchist movement, a Russian uh, prince who had been exiled from Russia for for organizing the assassination of his own uncle, the Tsar of Russia, and had been exiled from two other countries and imprisoned for organizing political murders of his enemies. So he's a guy with a history of paying people to kill other people for his political gain. He started this club in England, and he put Diemschutz in charge. I believe he brought Diemschutz specifically to execute these ripper murders. And this guy with this fake name, Diemschutz, which was a play on words, came into the country with his wife, Sarah Ann, who was nine years his junior, and they were living at this club, and he was the steward. He recruited a number of people into the club uh, who were all anti-English socialists, From different countries like Poland and Hungary and of course Russia. Some were English born. Some were even from Italy. But this club was sort of a hotbed of, of dissent against the British Empire. So Diemschutz was in charge of this club and he quote unquote found the body of Elizabeth Stride in front of his club on the night of the double event. And I say quote unquote because I know and can prove. He actually murdered her along with his Confederates, Isaac Kozabrodsky and Samuel Friedman. They murdered this woman, and they left her outside for him to then find 20 minutes later, coming home from work supposedly, and then start this huge sort of um, commotion at his club, which was actually an act of propaganda to bring more and more attention to his club and to bring, like I said earlier, his nemesis to the premises because every investigator involved in the Ripper case came rushing to to the International Working Men's Educational Club, which, by the way, none of us would even know it existed to this day if it weren't for the double event murders. So it was a very effective form of propaganda, which you probably know is very near and dear to the Russian communist, anarchist, socialist agenda. Propaganda is a huge sort of tool that they use in promoting their cause. So Diemschutz came to my attention to answer your question now, finally, um, because he found a body. And I put that in quotes. He says he found the body of Elizabeth Stride, when in actual fact, I know he set that murder up um, in order to to bring this propaganda publicity to his, his club. Um, he, he came to my attention, though, through this sort of algorithm that I've created in my investigations for solving various crimes. I have this algorithm that's made up of a set of 27, I guess you could call them filters, that I drop all of the names that are associated with any case through. And then those names that remain at the end of filter one, for example, get weighted. They get a weight to them. So if I drop... Everybody's named through a filter that, for example, says lives within one mile of the crime scene. And I drop 500 names in it and six come out. Those six get a weight of maybe 10 and then they go back in the pile. Then the next filter, which may be found the body of a victim, and that may have a greater weight and that may have a weight of 20 and only one or two drop out of that or maybe 10. So those guys now weigh twenty, and we go through these twenty seven filters. and at the end, he who weighs the most is the one that I first
0: interesting speak to almost like not- a it's 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 like a point system it sounds like, so you're you're not mm-hmm, yeah. you're not saying yeah. if somebody like doesn't make it through the first filter that they're eliminated. This is a point no. system so that over the course of all of these filters. So the idea that he found one of the victims, um, as you said, you know, how the Russians are, are great at, at propaganda and disinformation, uh, going, going back all the way to the beginning of their history. Uh, this would have been a great way to throw the police off. Like, okay, what are the odds that this guy did it or was involved? And then he himself found the victim and was there. Uh, with the authorities, uh, you know, uh, uh, right. the, so 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 he he would be fool. They would say this guy would be foolish to be there, to stay there and to also to have the crime so close to where he was located with his club and everything exactly. else. That that so he would be exactly. too but obvious did, of a victim of a of a prospect or a suspect. Yes,
1: fully. But they did somewhat suspect him, obviously for the reason that he found a body. But for the fact that another murder took place while he was sitting with them half a mile away. So they said, well, it can't be him, right? Because he was with us when the second murder took place. So they automatically discounted him as a suspect. So it was very clever. It was a very clever thing that many have done since, but he was the first to do that I could figure um, in history. However, many have done it since. So that's how I came upon him, how I stumbled upon him. Because, you know, his name was put into my system by a couple of different reasons. Not only the fact that he found a body, but the fact that he was arrested six months after the double event on the 19th of March, 1889. He was arrested along with his own wife and another guy called Samuel Friedman, who was 41, and another one uh, named Isaac Kozabrowski, who was 17, they were arrested for a violent crime six months after the double event, less than six months, actually. And so their names got entered in that respect as well. And that's how Kozabrotsky and Friedman came onto my radar.
0: Interesting. And that's and that's where uh, you began to put this together, the idea that it wasn't one person, that it was a group. Now, we've got about nine minutes left as far as pacing yourself is what you want to get to. I I do want to talk about the letters. And there were uh, there were several letters. And from what I've read, there's a lot of question about whether those letters actually came from this uh, group of, of killers. Or if they were just, um, you know, people in the public uh, writing these letters, but they all these letters all have specific names. There's one called the Hell Letter, I think. I know there's there's different names for these. Do, Do you is it your view that these letters were all legitimately from from them?
1: Well, not all of them, but certainly there are certain letters that I'm quite sure came from the Ripper, specifically the From Hell Letter that you just mentioned because it came with a piece of kidney. That was taken from the victim that night, and it was sent to a guy that nobody but a local Jew in Whitechapel would know and hate, a guy called George Lusk. So this goes right in line with my theory, as does all the evidence. Why? Because they did it. But in the case of the From Hell letter, they sent a piece of the kidney of the victim, which was infected with something called Bright's disease, And the piece of the renal artery that was attached to the kidney that was sent to this guy, George Lusk, matched exactly the cut and the length of the missing piece from the body. Wow. So there is very little possibility that was anything but authentic. Although, of course, in the ripperology community with all these know-it-alls, there's a bunch of people that'll say, oh, no, it was some medical student pulling a stunt. Yeah, well, the medical student would have to get his hands on a kidney that had Bright's disease that matched the renal artery length, that matched the cut. He would have to know which kidney it was that was missing, which wasn't specified in any of the, the newspapers. So let's, let's put it this way. It's infinitesimal that this was a hoax. So the From Hell letter we know is real. And the From Hell letter happens to match in some ways a letter called the McCarthy letter. That was sent to the owner of the apartment building where the fifth canonical victim, Mary Jane Kelly, was slain. And this letter was actually sent to the owner of that building, who was specified by Prince Kropotkin in his writings as the real culprit of the murders. He said in his writings, and I'll paraphrase, you know, if we were to catch the real Ripper, um, you know, at first we'd want to put a bullet through his brain. But in actual fact, the bullet would be better placed in the brain of the guy that owned that wretched den where Mary Jane Kelly did business. Hmm. And he said, if we really understand, understood Jack's motives, we would not hate him anymore. We'd actually admire him. And we'd understand that the true villain here is the guy that ran that business where Mary Jane Kelly was prostituting herself. Wow. I'm paraphrasing. But that's now, basically what he said.
0: Now, now the, so, the so letter, though, this- let me ask you, though, about the name Jack the Ripper. What what That was in one of the letters. Is that right? That's where yes. that name originated that from?
1: The,
0: yeah. That came from
1: a letter that that's known as the Dear Boss letter because it began with Dear Boss. Um, and that letter was sent to a guy called Thomas Bolling, who was the editor of the Central News Agency of London. And that letter came, you know, it was a sort of a taunting letter. But it had some clues in it that lent itself some credibility, specifically the mention of the clipping off of a victim's ears, which the public would not have known about, but actually took place twice. Someone had tried to cut off the the ears of uh, Annie Chapman in Hanbury Street and did actually cut off the ear of Catherine Eddowes in Mitre Square. So when the police actually realized that, at first they – They kind of wrote it off as a hoax. And some people have said that Thomas Bowling himself wrote it to sort of increase the readership of his newspaper. But when the cops realized that, wait a minute, this is referring to the clipping off of of the ears of the victims, which actually took place and no one knew, that's called insider knowledge. Mm. So that lends a lot of credibility to that letter having been written by the actual ripper
0: fascinating. And, and would, I, I watch, um, I watch a number of these uh, TV shows like Criminal Minds, and there's this profile type that they talk about, which we might use the word vigilante, but they call the profile an enforcer, uh, somebody who is basically taking their moral standards of right and wrong and going out and and killing people or hurting people, thinking they're doing good. And um, to sort of get to the end here with with just four minutes left, as we did in the last interview the motivation here um, was in their mind then that they were ridding the world of prostitution and prostitutes by doing this? no.
1: No, not at all. No, no, not at all. They did not hate prostitutes per se. They hated prostitution as an institution to the socialist anarchist communist. Prostitution is the most egregious abuse of a human being possible. And so what they did was they selected and they referred to the victims as martyrs, which as you know, means someone that dies for their religious cause. Normally mm-hmm. they selected these martyrs to die in order to bring the world's attention to this situation in Whitechapel of famine, of, of disease, of prostitution, of murder and, and other crimes of homelessness. And they chose these victims specifically For the salacious nature of a sex crime that would have brought the world's attention to Whitechapel, and in fact did. And it brought the world's attention to what was called the sweating system, which was an egregious abuse of the Jew, a quasi-slavery of the Jew in Whitechapel. And so as more and more people around the world were brought, the attention was brought to these people of these crimes and these situations in Whitechapel, Queen Victoria was forced to clean the area up and correct a lot of these situations. So I hate to give these guys credit, but they actually did somewhat accomplish what they set out to do because the world was demanding the eradication of this poverty, this homelessness, prostitution, disease, etc., that was going on in London that no one knew about at the time prior to the ripper killings. So their motivation was really in a sense, very altruistic. It was to rid the, Whitechapel of the sweating system and it was to rid the country of the prostitution scourge that they envisioned as as the worst abuse of humans possible.
0: Wow that's fascinating. Um I don't know if the term machiavellian would would apply but uh uh, playing, th- playing, playing three levels of chess there to follow that, and and these women then were selected as probably sympathetic victims, and the more horrendous the crimes, uh, the posing of the bodies, uh, leaving them in public places, all the more to get attention, and that would even explain the letters and the getting the media involved and uh, turning this into a PR campaign. Uh, uh, there, uh,
1: there's so much more, Jim. There's. There's just so much more. I hope your listeners will will go to my page and look at the notes section and look at the oldest ones first and and see the evidence that I've compiled because it's easy to listen to this and probably say, oh, yeah, this guy's a crackpot. He's one of a million ripper theorologists." But if you look at what I've compiled and you look at the motivations that I've assigned to these guys and you look at what we have on them, you're going to understand we've proven our case. I would not get these three powerhouses to sign on to my book if I had not proven to their satisfaction that my theory was correct. And then they turned around and bolstered it with more evidence that they were able to to add.
0: Very good. Now, the the title is Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. It's available in multiple formats, including for Kindle, if you want to get that over at Amazon. And our guest is Randy Williams. And Randy, uh, take a minute and tell us, about your different websites and how people can get more information and get in touch with you and if you have any speaking events or anything coming up
1: well um, the best place to find me is on Facebook I have a page that's Sherlock Holmes in the autumn of terror I think the page is actually called Randy Williams vs versus at the Ripper no spaces and um, you can find me there and there are notes section there's a notes section there where they can find essays done by me and my co-authors. There's also a me, we page with the same name as my book. And also, thanks to you, a Minds page, which um, I think you recommended me to open on that format. Minds is an uncensored um, Facebook-like format. So I have all my essays on the Minds page as well. And there are more photos on there that Facebook doesn't allow. For some reason, Facebook keeps um, censoring my 131 year old crime scene <laughs> photos in black and white yeah. that are in every high school. They're textbook. afraid it, it might be upsetting anyway. the
0: coronavirus narrative or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Who knows? So, so I have that, those pages. Um, your, your readers, if, or your listeners, if anyone's interested, um, just as a, an aside, I listeners or readers in, in England mainly and, and in Europe that are quarantined a lot more. Stringently than we are, I started reading the book as an audio book um, about three weeks ago. So every day there's a chapter. So if you go onto my page, you can find it read a chapter a day, and there's one sort of composite e- um, posting which which has all of the links for every chapter. And then obviously I'm an American, so in some ways it probably spoils the effect. So what I did was in those chapters where there was something really specific that really needed a, a British accent, I got um, a friend of mine who's an actress and very talented that can actually read in a male voice or a female voice to do some of the parts of the characters in the book to bring it to life a lot a little better than I could do, a lot better than I could do. So if, if people are interested in my book and maybe don't want to take a chance on it without a little sample, um, I would recommend that they go there to my page and and listen to a few chapters, if not the first twenty, uh, and then decide if they want to get the book.
0: So, so to get to the audio uh, book where you're reading it, 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 say that again. What what page is that on?
1: That is on Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror Facebook page, which has an address of Randy Williams V S or versus Jack the Ripper, no spaces.
0: Okay, very but good. I, I'm
1: pretty sure if you just look for the book title on Facebook, it's going to bring you there
0: very good and uh, of course we'll put links to a lot of that too so folks if you're listening you can always email me jim at com, and we can uh, send you links to that as well and the hour and two minutes believe it or not has gone by so fast uh, Randy Williams thank has you been so much long? it's been an hour and two minutes wow. believe it or not yeah and we've just scratched the surface here it. so a lot more oh, maybe yeah. for another, another uh, show to do with you thank you so much for being with us sir yeah. we really appreciate it and we'll definitely have you back again and also maybe 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 pop in in one of our guest segments again here soon as well. Thanks, Jim. It's been a real good time. Thank you very much. God bless. Wow, that was interesting. Um, I apologize that the phone connection was a little, you know, iffy here and there. Um, I didn't really know what to do about that. Other, I mean, it sounded like he might have been on a cell phone, but uh, uh, we got most of it in there. And the book is just incredibly well written. Uh, I highly recommend that you get a copy if you're somebody that's interested at all in true crime or Sherlock Holmes or maybe both. All right. That's it for tonight. And remember, if it's Sunday night. It's Jim Paris Live. We'll talk to you next time. So long, everybody.